Okay, here we are, uh, May the 3rd, 2015, lecture discussion um, uh, number 196 on the Book of Romans. And though it is not obvious, we are currently in Romans 11. Um, I've made this comment quite a bit. That's where we are. It's not easy to see that. I'm going to try to make it uh, a lot more obvious today. And specifically, we're going to start at 1126. That's that is part of the sign of Israel, which is here on the board in the number one position. 1126 of Romans says this, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved as it is written. And that has confused people. It's a very misunderstood verse in the church today. Uh, Romans chapter 11, as many of you know, it contains the Mystery of the blindness of Israel, one of the 11 mysteries. It's the seventh mystery of the 11 mysteries. And so uh, uh, Romans 11.25, right before that, um, is very important as well. Let me read them both together. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. And uh, then he gives us the appropriate uh, uh, verse in the Old Testament, Isaiah, and the Psalms as well. So, um, anyway, point of it is, is that he does not desire us, Paul, the Holy Spirit, that you be ignorant of this mystery. The implication is now obvious, isn't it? It's apparent. If God tells us, I don't want you to be ignorant of this seventh mystery, what are the odds that we are ignorant of it? Okay, we peg the needle. Uh, the immediate evidence is that we are uh, ignorant and that uh, we are ignorant because of what? Lest you should be wise in your own opinion of yourself. So we are ignorant because, and let me put it a different way, a more socially correct and easier term that doesn't offend people. We are stupid because we have an overinflated view of ourselves. The singular characteristic of the terminally stupid is that they are certain that they're otherwise. Beware of those who are eager to provide their opinions when they do not possess the sanction to do so. And he is warning the church, this is a mystery. You won't get it. And the reason you won't get it is because you have an inflated view of your intelligence. There's two areas that I have found the examples of the unstudied and the unlearned, the inexperienced, if you will, to be the most aggressive. And those areas are naturally theological matters and construction techniques. That's because that's what I do, right? You may have different examples. I can count, I can't count, I'm sorry, the number of evolutionary atheists who I encounter who are convinced of their infallibility with regard to biblical truths. They will start out almost every conversation that I have with them, whether it be written or, or just one to another orally, they will always say or write that they have a fantastic 
understanding of Scripture. I know the Bible. I grew up in a church, they will tell me. I'm constantly studying Scripture, they'll say. And they are convinced of their infallibility. And they are espousing what they think is true very loudly, and their positions bear no semblance to any scriptural intent ever. I'm sympathetic, though, because I know there's a supernatural blindness that is present. Not like Israel's blindness on an individual level. There's a blindness because the Bible is taught by who, ultimately? Who, who reveals Scripture to you? Who tells you what is the truth of it? That is a Holy Spirit uh, process, the Holy Spirit of God. So if you are an unsaved person, the chances that you have anything right in the Bible is very, very small, if not nil. The Bible is saturated in the person of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is is if you try to separate Jesus Christ from Scripture, there's no possibility that you will perceive its correct meaning. You're looking for Christ, you will succeed. You're looking for yourself, high, high possibility, not high possibility, high probability of complete failure. And I always take the example of the Old Testament. The atheistic media in our country today is unceasing. They don't stop. They just keep doing the same thing. They never stop repeating the same error over and over and over again. And I think, do they not, doesn't somebody tell them that this error results in failure over and over again? And I finally came to the conclusion that, yes, somebody does tell them. They don't care. It doesn't deter them a bit. They have a Christless, a Christless, and let me say that as definitively as I can for the internet folks. They have no Christ approach to the Old Testament. When they read the Old Testament, they never consider that it is about Jesus Christ. Never enters their mind and they don't care. They're intentionally having a Christless approach to the Old Testament. It's by design. It may be by default. It may be their default position, but I'm, I'm on the side that it is by design. It is purposeful. And so, uh, without exception, they are always wrong whenever they put some position forth on the Old Testament. More likely, it will be Leviticus, for example. They, their Old Testament interpretations, their Old Testament presentations, whether they be movies or, or books or whatever they do, they're going to always be wrong. Again, this is a spiritual consequences, a consequence. They cannot teach themselves. And they have no intention of teaching themselves. Even if they found out that what they were doing was wrong, and therefore they were intentionally doing something that is a lie, they would nonetheless do it. Because the, the purpose is uh, the end result. They cannot, they will not teach themselves the truth of the Bible. So whenever you read their view... Always begin that it will be counterfactual. Their conclusion only solidifies counterfactual conclusions. Now, not on the same level of seriousness. That's the one that I confront the most. But I also witness another phenomenon because of the do-it-yourself network. 
there's a growing horde of enthusiastic remodelers out there now because of the do-it-yourself network. Do you watch the do-it-yourself network? Yes, everybody does. I know. I know. You tell me. It's so, there's this collection now, as I said, a horde of very, very aggressive remodelers who are taught to be aggressive, who have a misguided, though nonetheless robust assurance that they can completely restructure or reconfigure a kitchen for $2,500 in three days. They are convinced, and they'll come to me and tell me so. And I'll go, no. They saw it on TV. It must be true. Do-it-yourself network would not lie to them on purpose, would it? Yes. Yes, it would. So there's my unsolicited advice for today. It's free. It's no charge. If you see it on TV, it's not true. Start there. Maybe once in a great while it will be true, but start with it's not true. Be skeptical. If the television supposed contractor is young and attractive, whoa, stop. I've seen the contractors. They're not young and they're not attractive. Don't be fooled, right? <laughs> young, attractive people do not go into the contracting business. And they don't stay attractive very long if they're in it. That's kind of a joke, not really. If you see this beautiful young girl that said she's a contractor, uh, there is no hope of actuality coming your way. None, zip, zilch, void, run away. Switch to the Cartoon Network, far more realistic. Pretty much the same target demographic. So what's the result now with this stuff? There are now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who, despite no justification to think elsewise, they're nonetheless fully confident that it is a great plan to take an eight-pound sledgehammer to interior walls, especially in the kitchen or the bathroom, because they've watched it. And in the kitchen and the bathroom, what do you got there? you got water supply, don't you? You've got electrical supply. Usually, at minimum, a range 50-amp, 240-volt lines. You've got natural gas piping in there for, for gas ranges. You've got ventilation for toilets. and You have heat ducts most of the time. In most of the houses in Alaska, it's all ducting. You have structural posts. That's my favorite. I, as you know, I'm dealing with my mother's house still, those of you on the Internet. People down the street had the same house. They tore down a structural wall in order to have an open kitchen. And they removed the structural post that holds the beam, that holds the stick frame roof system. Took it out. But boy, they got a nice open kitchen in an earthquake zone. What could possibly go wrong? But behind all those walls, again, pipes, gas, electrical, Structural, hidden behind that sheetrock that you're about to take a 10-pound sledge to. Well, it's not a 10-pound sledge. I've seen the people on TV. They're, they're all little tiny things. So it's probably a 5-pound sledge. 
nonetheless, they're swinging as hard as they can, and they're going to destroy what's ever behind that sheetrock. They can't see it. They don't care. They saw it on TV. And all to the delight of who? That's right, the plumbers and the electricians and all these suppliers who said, do this, do this, go, go. And they advertise on these shows, don't they? They they encourage the young people to destroy their houses. Demolition is fun. It's fun. We hit the wall, right? Go fast, as fast as you can. And so essentially what we have here is the equivalent of a teenage boy giving parenting advice. Justin Bieber, self-declared child behavioral guidance authority. That's what we've got. And I've been around you folks, you especially you mothers, you young mothers. Is there no more annoyance, no greater irritant than to be told by single, young, and therefore completely unqualified high school students? College students, that your kids, that you're parenting, are out of control. They have no kids. But they'll tell you, you are a bad parent. Okay? That they would, who, they who are, have no children, never been around children, wouldn't know a children if they bit them, which they will, they will, of course, be far more competent at it than you who are going through the process, right? And they tell you all the time. Adina posted something a while back. made me cry. It was so funny. I can't repeat it, though. And along those lines, I hope you read it. Well, imagine, I want you to imagine your response and your rage, and, and then I want you to think what I think when I'm, when I'm watching Buffy on cable TV shows with a tool belt on backwards, telling me what substrate's best for a tiled tub surround. That kind of wise in your own opinion. See how I get back to Romans 11, 25, and 26? Don't have that when you're reading these verses. Don't be wise in your own opinion, especially when you're totally unjustified for doing so. Yes, sir. That's correct. For those on the Internet, uh, Supper Dave interjected that... Uh, that willful, knowing ignorance, when you are self-aware that the position that you have is unjustified, but you give it nonetheless, that's a moral issue. You are destroying yourself morally, and you are taking realism from the person that you are addressing. So you're stripping them of reality and destroying your own probity. So... It's not something that the Bible would ever want us to do. And this verse in 1126 and 25:26 of Romans, this is a mystery. So we are to proceed with awe here. We are to go slow. This isn't the sledgehammer approach. This is a, this is a solemn verse there, and it awaits us. And we're going to take it on over the next two or three weeks. So also is a Romans 11:6 through 10. Let me read that. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And people go, well, duh. Don't do that there. That is a extraordinary, sophisticated biblical principle. Very complex. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. That 
principle, C.S. Lewis, this biblical principle, C.S. Lewis applied to existence. And I hope you remember that, concluding as he did to the continuity of the soul of the personhood of his dead wife. He said, if you remember, if H is not, then she never was. His, or if you want, if his wife had ceased to exist, then she never possessed existence. And, and as much as our existence is self-evident, our existence is obvious to us. And so if we have existence, we always have existence. We cannot cease. Therefore, H is was his conclusion. And that's something we will revisit as well as, as it does indeed surface here in Romans 11, uh, 6. Now, I want you to note, um, where am I headed next? I didn't write the verse down, so I have to find it. There it is, verse 22. I want you to note what, uh, your, your Bible may have therefore, I've corrected mine with behold. And if you want, have behold therefore. So verse 22. Behold, therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But towards you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Let me read it again. Behold, therefore. So when you see the behold, you go, okay, wow. I'm into something here that maybe I'm not going to get. Once more, put down the sledgehammer. Don't go fast. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity. But towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will, you also will be cut off. Now, many assign Romans 11.22 to what topic? They assume that the topic is what? Yes, exactly right. They assume that this is individual salvation. Teaching that our salvation is dependent upon our continuing. However, they so define continuing. And they will define it for you. There'll be a whole, you'll have a, a 50 pages of what they say continuing means. On every page will be what? Giving them money. That's the plan. You know better, right? Let's go back. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And that, we've just got that established, right? So don't say, wait a minute. This says that I'm going to define this continuing as some works-based process in light of 11.6. Don't do that. So the context can't be individual salvation. So what must it be then? What's the subject? Most of you have Bibles with uh, little bits of uh, uh, titling in it. My particular uh, one that I have says, Israel's rejection not final. So the context, that's a nice hint for you sometimes if you don't have that. The context is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel's rejection of Christ's Messiahship and their subsequent blindness that they're currently in, they will remain, and they do remain, blind nationally. The nation of Israel is blind to the Godhood of Christ. Now, that's changing. Right now, they don't think, they don't know that Jesus Christ is the I Am 
of the nation of Israel. We know that. They don't. They remain blind as a nation. Individually, there are many Jews that are messianic or that are saved, that do know who Christ is. So it is not an individual context. It is a national context. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. That's why I emphasize, otherwise you also will be cut off. Well, if I'm talking about the nation of Israel, then I must be talking about general, generally the, the Gentile nations, not individual salvation. So the nation of Israel was cut off, not individual Jews, and that's made um, obvious by Paul's own personal salvation statement in Romans 11.1. 1. He's a Jew. Jews have been cut off individually from salvation. How would he be saved? That's what he says to, to begin with. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the nation. It's like uh, Jacob and Esau, <coughs> as we covered previously. And obviously, we will be correctly defining what continuing in goodness means and the fullness of the Gentiles. And I'll be doing that soon. And by soon, I mean not today, right? Okay. All of that takes us where we are, or where we were. That's the introduction. So where are we? That's, uh, as you know, an appropriate cliffside question. We should ask, where are we, probably every five minutes here. No matter when it's asked, it's always appropriate. Okay, we barely began to consider the sign of the taken bride. That's where we are. Some would call that the rapture or the catching up. I'm calling it the taken bride because I have the sign of the what right on top of it. What is Israel called in the Bible? What's the symbol? When God deals with Israel, he deals with her like as if she were, not she is, as if she were. She's a symbol. She's symbolized by wife. Absolutely correct. So I have the sign of the wife and I have the sign of the bride. The bride is taken, so I call it the taken bride. The wife has been divorced, so if you wish, you have the sign of the divorced wife. So he's treating Israel as if she is an adulterous divorced wife, because that's the symbol that is applicable to her. He's treating the church as if she is a cleansed, pure white bride-in-waiting. Does that make sense? Can't repeat that enough. So the sign of the wife and the sign of the bride. And currently, we're evaluating the sign of the taken bride. That's how we got here, and that's where we are, and that's what we're trying to do. And we have just barely begun to consider it, uh, the sign of the taken bride, as it impacts the sign of the nation of Israel. So we're watching in our lifetime the sign of the nation of Israel. It's here. It's come. 1948, we can see it. It's visible. It's physically true. It's happening now. They're being isolated. They're being attacked. They're being plotted against. So we have elements of the sign. We have the Israel as a nation, and we have elements of the remaining sign uh, components, if you will, occurring almost daily. And perhaps you've been noticing how I continue to link those two together. That, that is, a, is, of course, intentional, my grand design. The Romans 11 ingredient, if you will. I'm trying to explain that Israel will not always be blind. Blindness of Israel will come to an end. It's going to come to the to an end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So we do need to know when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. 
Then we need to know when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, will they be taken? Because you see, Romans 11 makes it clear that Israel is going to be saved and restored. The saving of Israel is therefore the culmination of the sign of the wife. She is saved and reestablished. So she is not divorced and executed and replaced. She is restored, redeemed, saved. He pursues her. Read the story of Hosea, which is, if you wish, is the same derivative as Yeshua, right? Hosea, Yeshua, pursuing his wife, who is an adulteress, right? As we watch the unfolding of all of these events, the return of the Jews to their nation, started in the early 1900s, culminated in the 19, uh, late 1940s, and, and has continued. The Jews are leaving Europe now, heading back. There's article after article. Magazines are, are saying, should the Jews leave Israel? I think Ken gave me one last week. I'm sorry, should the Jews leave Europe for Israel? I said that wrong. Let me repeat it so I got it right. Magazine covered, should the Jews leave Europe? Absolutely they should leave Europe. And they know it. Last time they didn't leave Europe. They're not going to make that mistake again. That's one of the signs that the fullness of the Gentiles is coming. It's very near. So we're seeing that. The city of Jerusalem is now under Jewish control, at least mostly. Uh, and, and there's these relentless attempts to exterminate the Jewish people. And, and now what are we watching in Europe and what are we watching in the world? We're, we're seeing this increasing hatred. It's, it's irrational loathing uh, directed at the Jewish people. And it's consuming the world. It's now p- politically fine in this country to hate the Jews. No consequences to you. And we know the time that God has set for his saving of Israel is very new. And so we know soon the sign of the taking of the bride is going to occur. And the wife Israel will be the one in my estimation. I believe that this is accurate and I hope so because I don't want to get blamed if it isn't. But it's my position that the wife Israel is going to know that the bride has been taken. She might be the only one that knows, with the exception of a few people. I don't think it's going to be like the movies where everyone knows, because that's an unmistakable, miraculous event then. And I don't think God does it that way. His point of it is worldwide revival, so I can see that, but he has 144,000 Jews. Um, I was talking to the lovely Lori earlier today, and she uh, wanted to know, is it my position that the 144,000 Jews have a relationship to those who came out of the tombs at the crucifixion? And we'll get into those kinds of subjects in the future weeks. But uh, he's going to take care of those who will come to him every time. Don't worry about that. If you have a loved one that you think will not be in the taken bride, well, he'll have a, that loved one will have 144,000 amazing young men that God has supernaturally endowed 
and he sets them loose on the world for, for the purpose of taking all who will come. But the sign of the taking of the bride is going to happen, and when it happens, who's going to notice it? If you read uh, Romans 11, 11 through 15, let me do that for a fa- uh, really fast. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. He's talking about the nation of Israel, not individual Jews and not individual people. It's not about your salvation, but about the nation of Israel. But through their trespasses or their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So salvation to the Gentiles is going to provoke Israel to turn spiritually. The taking of the bride is the greatest sign of salvation to the Gentiles that we could ever imagine. They are the, the church is gone. The Jews know who took them. And if the Jews did not get taken, then what? What does that mean to them? You can't hit somebody with a ball bat any harder than that. If the Jews know that the church is the bride and the bride has been taken by the I am, then they know that Jesus Christ is the I am and they are provoked to salvation. That's the plan, I believe. I think the taking of the bride causes Israel to turn spiritually. It may not be the only thing, Obviously, there's many who will worship the Antichrist, irrespective of, of this. So that leads me to believe that not all Jews recognize that the bride has been taken, but I think the nation of Israel does. That is where the remnant is, in my view. Obviously, I don't think the remnant is in Hollywood, if you're asking me. I'm not, I hope they are. I won't be surprised. But right now, it doesn't look so good for Hollywood. Obviously, I am submitting to you that the taking of the bride is central uh, to the nation of Israel, to their turning spiritually. If anyone will understand the sign of the taken bride, it will be the nation of Israel. Their blindness and this mystery of their blindness will, will be ending, and they'll be able to see again for the first time in 2,000 years. But what then of the rest of the world? And we've been asking that question often here. What is the evidence that the bride has been taken? Is there any evidence for anyone to see? If there's not any evidence, how does God hide it? How does he mask it so no one notices it but the nation of Israel? Or very few notice it. If you have the understanding to notice the bride has been taken and you're not a Jew, what am I thinking? How did you get that understanding? That's a Holy Spirit event. How did you learn that the bride was taken? How did you know? I could walk around the city. I, I see these comedians do it all the time. They put microphones in front of people and ask them who the vice president is. And, of course, no one knows anything about their own country. How many know about the sign of the taking of the bride? Fewer still. I could walk into churches and start this discussion. And few know. So, 
to that end, it becomes necessary to, to, to delve into the particulates of the body resurrection that occurs uh, as well in, in our and it's a feeble attempt. I'm trying to ascertain, and I want you as well to understand the methods that God utilizes specifically during the taking of the bride. And some suggest to me all the time that to put energy into this is a wasteful fool's errand. Uh, that's a very common response that I get, retort, I guess. And as you know, I can't disagree more. Because if I can understand the, the God's processes on a very specific level. I can gather a lot of pieces to this process and, and, and therefore his purposes are going to come forth. I'm going to, that's what? What am I doing by that? That's understanding. That's wisdom. And if I have understanding and I have wisdom that he gives me, if I pursue it as he's asked me to do, he hasn't asked us to do it. He's told us to do it. It's a direct order. Do this. So I'm going to, I'm going to salute and do it. What do I get out of it? Well, I get wisdom. What does that give me? It gives me comfort. And it allows him to use us. We become effective. Instead, what's that? Yes, testimony. We have witnessing abilities now. We're not completely worthless to it. We're worthless. Never mistake that. He does not need us for anything. People have told me, well, what's going to happen when you stop preaching? Well, the same thing that happened when I left the railroad. They're still running. They're still blowing whistles and dumping concrete. I'm sorry, uh, uh, gravel. God is not depending on anybody, but we become less worthless, I guess, would be better. And any opportunity to gain wisdom and comfort, uh, I think, is obviously worthwhile. I see a world around me, especially in a church, that is keenly lacking in both. As Bill illustrated uh, a couple of weeks ago now with the, the sheep and the mucus and the maggots and the dingleberries, that's the church today. So I guess my whole point is get as much wisdom as you can so that you have less mucus maggots and dingleberries. I was a, I was in the PE department at a local high school, as you know, for a few years, and I was the athletic director of a local Christian school for a few years, and I got to learn firsthand what happens when teenage boys begin to grow hair. That's when I first learned about dingleberries. I couldn't believe it. But I found out how to solve it. And the way you solve it was with what? With a hose. That's right. I'd spray them down with water. It worked great. And they were amazed. Wow. There's a picture of us, huh? So positing that the body's resurrection and the subsequent instantaneous transformation, the changing that's going to happen, has a deeper meaning, if you will. That's what I'm trying to do, a complexity beyond merely for our own benefit. He's not raising us bodily just because it helps us. It's not what he's doing. It's not for our benefit, even though we benefit. This is the translation or the resurrection. Some who are alive are translated. Those who have, are asleep, who have died physically, their bodies have died, they're resurrected. I believe the translation, resurrection, kind of blends together. But 
for now I'll separate them. I said recently, last week, that our body resurrection accomplishes a few things. The fact that we now have a body. As every one of the Jehovah's Witnesses, as you know, do not believe that your body is going to be resurrected, that you only have a spiritual resurrection. That's Gnosticism, by the way, because they believe that the physical reality is evil. And so God will just destroy it, and all you'll have is a spiritual body. So you'll have your personhood, you'll have your self-awareness, but you will not have a physical reality. The Bible does not teach that. It says you will have a body. So what's the purpose of it? And I said one of the purposes, of course, was recognition. You're going to recognize yourself first and foremost. I'm going to recognize that it's me in my body again if I happen to go before the rapture. But I'm going to know. So that's going to give me continuity. It'll also give the same to those who have gone on ahead of us. When they're recombined with their body, they're going to know it's them and they're going to know it's their body. So recognition and continuity. And obviously, if we're going to be given a physical body again, except it's going to be uh, changed so that it is no longer corruptible, it'll be incorruptible, which means it'll never perish again. It won't decay again. It can't be killed. By the way, doesn't that remind you of the 144,000 as they're described? So that makes you wonder, how did they get that way and why? What about those guys that came out of the tombs? What were they like? They went into Jerusalem and they testified to people. Who were they? Who listened to them? How come we don't have any record of them except in the Bible? Who knew about them? Don't you think that that would be an event that the world would never forget? Well, the world didn't even know about it. That's why I go back to the taking of the bride, right? Who's going to really know? But obviously, if we recognize ourselves and we understand our continuity um, in our bodies now as well as our soul, and we have this physical machine that is unbelievable, probably, I can't wait to see you. C.S. Lewis, to use his phrase, says, when we see another person in a resurrected body, we will be stunned at how amazing and incredible they look. We will be so awestruck, we will think that they're some kind of supreme creature until we find a mirror. So, why do we have this amazing machine if it's not going to do anything? Obviously, we're going to need that machine, right? So, we have recognition, we have continuity, we have need... But foremost, I think the major reason is that we will be in a dependent state, dependency, dependent, dependency. There. I did it. I was able to spell it. What do I mean by dependency? You have this marvelous machine. What's it need? You're going to look at yourself and go, I have a Ferrari versus my current Pinto. Pinto gets hit from the back, it blows up every time. But now I've got a Ferrari, and it flies. I hope it does, but it might not. I have to get into gravity on another day. 
But you have this incredible machine now. You've been repaired, if you will. You've been changed, transformed. Metamorphosis is the word. You're a butterfly now instead of a little maggot. Okay, not really a maggot. Why do you have the machine? What's the obvious reason? One, you have to recognize yourself. And two, you have to recognize others. Why? That's important. But you're also dependent. You're in an environment or soon to be in an environment that puts you into dependency. You need fuel. We need fuel now. What do we call fuel? Food. Some of you call it pizza. But God knows that you're going to need fuel. We also need air, don't we? He has an air system. It is not insignificant. I've said it many times that he calls himself the breath of life. He calls himself the living water. He calls himself the great rest. He calls himself uh, what have I left out? The breath of life. He calls himself these things that we're dependent on. We're dependent on air. We're dependent on light. We're dependent on uh, fuel or food. Uh, We're dependent on water. All of those things, we have a dependency. If we don't have that, we begin to break down and perish. I think that that dependency is very important for us to understand. And I think it will stay there. So physical machines will require, um, will have those kinds of conditions on them. In other words, we are going to manifest ourselves like we do now. You can tell what I'm thinking by how I move, what my facial expressions are, uh, how I move my hands, uh, what I'm doing. You can figure out what I'm thinking. So it's communicative. So communication is just not verbally. It is physical as well. And that is going to be uh, uh, an aspect of this. So. Ask why. Why does he want us to do all of these things and manifest ourselves as we uh, do now? And it will allow, again, for us to be seen and recognized and remembered and heard by others. It's It's also going to allow us to prove who we are. Because you're going to want to know who I am. I'm going to want to know who you are. And we'll be in the process of proving it to each other. Hey, it's me. I'm the one that called you Supper Dave. And you'll know no one else could have told me that but him. It's got to be him. We'll be able to prove ourselves to others and to ourselves. Now, I want you to set aside for a minute our, our instincts to self-focus, which is what I've just been doing, right? Instead of noting how we benefit, instead ask what? What's the appropriate question? Why does God do this? What is his purpose for it? Is he doing it for your sake? What is revealed about God by our body resurrection? See, there's two schools of thought in theology. One school of thought says that everything is about us. You can throw that out immediately. Salvation is about us, they say. The whole purpose of Christ dying on the cross is so that we can live. That's one school of thought. 
That's called the human perspective. The other school of thought, which is, I believe, so overwhelmingly correct, that what it does, it this the resurrection, the salvation, reveals and glorifies, reveals God's character and glorifies Him. So what is revealed about God, how is He glorified by our body resurrection? And now uh, you go back and return to yourself for a second. What is proved by our body resurrection and our changing? We're resurrected and changed, and clearly it's physical evidence. Why is he doing this? It's physical. The Jehovah's Witness and the Gnostics have the other side again, but this is physical evidence. So what does that prove about God? And I know you're thinking to yourself, oh no, here comes quantum physics again. Uh, but that's not true. Don't be scared. Okay, be a little scared. Let me read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Sacrifices are what? Dead. I present your... you. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or logical service. In other words, he's saying, this is logical for you to do this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I bring this up because of the juxtapositioning. Once again, I have the physical body and the supernatural mind. I gotta present the body and I have to renew the mind. Those are two processes that are not the same. One's a physical process, one's a spiritual process. That you may prove what is that, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I have those three things. I have good. I have acceptable. And I have perfect. Why those three? We're going to have to figure that out, aren't we? We have to search it out. What are those words used for typically in the Bible? Good, perfect, acceptable. Typically, those are talking about the Old Testament... Uh, the sacrificial language. Acceptable is Old Testament sacrificial language, sacrificial system language. And once we understand what acceptable means, uh, we will uh, lead that will lead us to the purpose of the sacrificial system itself. Good and perfect are also borrowed from the Old Testament Leviticus sacrifice system. So then, uh, now note the leap that I'm going to make here. How does the taking of the bride then conform or connect to the purpose of the sacrificial system? Or let me say it differently. How does Abrahamic covenant sign of circumcision, circumcision how does that connect to the rapture? I know. Where did that come from? Is it not the case that our bodies at our resurrection 
are being made acceptable to God. He's transforming them, isn't he? Because what's wrong with them? They're corrupt. He's got to change them. So somehow I have the sign of the taken bride and the changing of the body to make the body acceptable. That's a sacrificial system. That's a sacrificial reference. Is it also not the case that our minds are being renewed? Yes, it is. Our minds are being renewed. Is it true that Romans 12 also referencing our earthly witness? That's true. I'm not going to discount that. But I submit that the language in Romans 12 is unmistakably the Leviticus sacrificial system in nature. So I want to know, by what means are we made acceptable? How do we become transformed so that we can enter into the presence of God? What changes us from corruptible to incorruptible? And obviously, in the Leviticus system, I, what, what did that? The blood of animals. The blood of animals is a type of the blood of Christ. So obviously, the blood of Christ during the rapture, I called it a car wash, if you will. You're going to go through a car wash, your body is. It, the blood of Christ, you come out the other side transformed. If you want to, that's the best analogy I got. And we're going to need to evaluate the role that God's blood plays more intensely than I ever have before. Now, let me leave you with this. And yes, I'm aware of the road to Emmaus and the empty tombs at the time of the crucifixion. I have not forgotten that. I have not forgotten that I forget to remember. So I'll get to that in the next week. Anyway, I just want to deal with Sharon from Texas again. She just recently sent me an analogy of evil. And I wish to discuss it, because understanding evil is quite helpful to understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that system, as you know, fundamentally is a prophecy of the redemptive work of Christ, something that only he can do. He alone is able to accomplish it. Now, Sharon wanted to know the definition of evil. That's not exactly how she put it. She sent me something that is... Uh, attempting to do that, and it didn't succeed. Um, And Sharon's submittal is going to require that we discuss things like zero degrees Kelvin. Don't run. And other such things. But this time it'll it'll be funner. I promise. So the question is, what is evil? What is it? Uh, to the physicalist, evil is physical. It's part of a physical process. So the people that think there's only a physical reality, they say evil is part of the physical reality, so therefore it must be physical. Since the physical believes that the mind is merely emergent from the physical brain, he does not see the mind and the brain as separate. He sees them uh, as the brain causes the mind to uh, pop out, I guess, like a jack-in-the-box toy. Then the jack-in-the-box toy be takes over the brain, right, somehow. And, and, and he thinks that way, though there is no logical path to that conclusion or any evidence, but the monist is confident that soon neuroscience will validate his emergentism. Uh, I tell them don't hold their breath, but they don't listen to me. But if one is to concede that evil is physical, 
then the implications are really significant. And Christians try to do this a lot. They try to blend cold with evil. And they put little videos on the internet that are illogical, but they don't know. They say cold equals evil. Well, that's a problem. Cold is what? They will say cold is a lack of heat. So cold equals evil. We'll say lack of heat. Lack of heat equals cold. And cold equals evil. I'm running out of room on the board. That's what they'll say. But cold is a a perception. It's a subjective term. We're back into George Berkeley now. Aren't you glad? Cold is a condition of atomic particle momentum. And that's, by the way, how we're going to get to zero degrees Kelvin, because zero degrees Kelvin, absolute zero, as it's called, uh, tells you that there is no atomic particle momentum. That's a a state of none. By the way, that's the same for light. They will say light uh, is the absence of heat. I'm sorry, the absence of darkness. And darkness is evil. But what makes up light? Or I'll put it a different way. Brightness. What makes up brightness? Photons. Particles. So, the more photons I have, the brighter I am. Or the brighter the environment I'm in. And just as an aside, if I can say that cold is the op- is the uh, is the lack of heat and light is the is uh, or darkness is the I got to start all over again. If I try to say that cold is the absence of heat and that darkness is the absence of light, then I can reverse that, can I not? I can say that heat is the absence of cold and darkness or light is the absence of darkness. I can reverse it. So, careful how you make those kinds of analogies. Light is the, is the presence of, of photons. Brightness is abundant photons. Darkness is minimalized photons, but it's still subject. If I had a cat here, the cat would look at what I saw as darkness and say, no, no, my perception or my subject analysis is that that's pretty bright. I can see fine. Night vision goggles. I can see fine. So, brightness is subject to perception. So it's not logical to apply physical events to evil or to apply physical analogies to evil. That's a mistake. It's going to get you in trouble. Because evil is not physical. The Bible makes it very clear that it is not your physical acts that it, that is the origin of evil. It is your thoughts. Evil is of supernatural origin. It is first conceived in the non-physical mind. And that's important to the Bible, that we never make that mistake. Evil acts are the manifestation of evil thoughts. Evil acts proceed from evil thoughts. I have physical acts because I first had non-physical, immaterial, supernatural mind thoughts. 
There is no evil act that occurs without an evil thought. And the evil thought is non-physical. And that is why God wanted Israel to circumcise their infant sons. Makes perfect sense, right? Of course it does. I wrote, what? And then I wrote, see ya. But that's why. Because evil is immaterial. That's why God said, circumcise your sons. Next week, you will know why that is. You'll get it. Just give yourself time. Or it's just a trick to increase attendance. It's one of the two. But I have faith in you. It could be both. Think it through. You'll get it.